Morning, Sound West. Uh, welcome back to Church at Home. We're, I'm excited that you're joining us and they continue to join us as we journey together through summer and through the book of Mark. I hope your summer's off to a great start. We are rounding the final corner of Mark. We've got a couple of chapters left, uh, which would take us through the, the rest of summer, and things are about to get a little spicy. Uh, and so we're looking at Mark chapter 13. Uh, today and the title uh, the sermon this morning is the end of the world uh, is it the end of the world with everything going on right now is it the end of the world is it, you know would we read into what's happening and think man with all the craziness happening all the shifts and changes and the global impact you know is the world ending and uh I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but I think Mark 13 does have something to tell us. And so I'm excited to dive into this text because I think it's particularly important for us right now uh, in the world that we live in. Uh, but this is probably the most difficult passage in the entire Gospel of Mark. Uh, every different scholar you read, you're probably going to get a different idea or perspective on this text. So I don't claim that my perspective uh, is the right perspective, uh, but uh, it is the one that I understand uh, uh, to be maybe most representative of what's happening in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to give uh, credit uh, to Tim Geddert, who uh, was uh, the prof I had when I did my Gospel of Mark class uh, in my studies. And uh, I am boring significantly uh, from some of his views on this. Um, and they're not just his views, they're shared by others, but, uh, but his views uh, in his commentary, which I've taken. So uh, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 13. And we cannot understand what's happening in Mark 13 without understanding the temple. And so we've already seen the temple in the center of the, the story at the end of Mark. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus confronts the temple system. You remember a couple of weeks ago, he went in, he turned over the tables, he called the religious leaders. Um, he said that you've made this house of prayer into a den of robbers. And we talked about what that meant. And then the very next chapter, he goes after different religious leaders, uh, the, the council that oversaw the temple system, the Sanhedrin. And so in that group, he went after the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And so he was just creating conflict uh, all over the place uh, and challenging the leaders and the systems of that day. And then that brings us to Mark 13. And the temple is still in the center of the story and what's happening. And this is what we have. This is what the text says. Uh, and as he came out of the temple, right, so this is uh, right after he challenges the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and he comes out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And I just think this is a huge example of just entirely missing the point. The disciples have been slow to get it from the very get-go. Uh, and I read a story uh, a year ago, an, an article uh, about a mom that went to Walmart to get a birthday cake for her two-year-old, her two-year-old daughter. So it was her second birthday. Her daughter's name was Elizabeth, and so she went to Walmart and said to the cake maker or whatever the proper name is for that person, uh, "I got a daughter named Elizabeth. I want a birthday cake for her. Uh, her name, her nickname is Lizard." 
And so if you could write happy birthday lizard on the birthday cake, that would be fantastic. And so they made the cake and she showed up and grabbed the cake and took it home. And then at the birthday party, they unveiled the cake and the cake said, happy birthday loser. (laughs) Happy birthday loser. Uh, How would you like that message on your birthday cake as a two-year-old? Uh, so obviously the Walmart, the worker at Walmart, uh, did not hear very clearly, uh, the commandments that were given to her, to him, to him or her by the mom. Uh, totally misunderstood, totally misheard, and you can imagine the frustration of the mom, uh, you know, loser. I didn't say loser. And, and you think this might be a little bit of a picture of how Jesus feels at this point when he keeps telling his disciples something and they keep hearing something else and they're, they're totally not getting it. And so this is the kind of situation we have at the beginning of Mark 13, where Jesus just spent all this time and energy going in the temple, flipping the tables, challenging the system, challenging the leaders, and then they're leaving the temple and the disciples say, Jesus, check out this awesome temple. How wonderful and amazing this place is. And then he's like, have you guys not been paying attention? And you can just picture him doing this face palm, like, happy birthday, loser. Like, you don't, you didn't get it. And so this is what we have in Mark 13. And so Jesus responds, he said, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You guys are putting all this emphasis on the temple. You think it's so marvelous, but little do you know, this temple is about to be destroyed and there won't be one stone left. And so this is the the basis and the Uh, the foundation that we need to have to understand what's happening here in Mark chapter 13. And so as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and so the Mount of Olives was actually directly opposite the temple on a different uh, different mountain, and the temple was on a different mountain, and you could actually see from one to the other. And so they're on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, you know, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to, ha- to be accomplished? You mentioned, you know, the destruction of the temple. Uh, when are these things going to happen? And so this question frames the rest of the chapter. And it's critical to understanding this question. When will these things, and what things are they referring to? Obviously, they're referring to the destruction of the temple, but they're referring to more than that as well. And some people wondered, is Mark 13... Is it an apocalyptic passage? Is it about the end times? Is it about the last days? And I think that's a great question. Is Mark 13 about the last days? And the answer is, yes, it is. But that depends on how you understand the last days. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return is understood in the New Testament as the last days. So yes, you and I are living in the last days. But also, the disciples were living in the last days. After Jesus was resurrected, ascended to the Father, they were living in the last days. And so we are in that same age as the disciples, so to speak. So yes, this is about the last days. This is about the age that we're currently in. Uh, And so there's something going on here in comparing our present age, the last days that we're in, with the age to come. And this is really important to understand. And so when they talk about the end, when this question is about the end, it's not talking about the end of the world as we know it. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the end of the present age. And consequently, that is the point where the beginning of the age to come would happen. 
And so there's more, there's a lot going on in the disciples' question. And there's, there's two events that they are referring to in their questioning. And one is the destruction of the temple that Jesus is describing. But the second one is the coming or the returning uh, of the Son of Man. And there's references to both of these things kind of throughout Mark 13. And it takes a little bit of work to figure out what, which one exactly is being referred to. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so they asked Jesus this question in private. And if you've been paying attention in Mark, you should know that Jesus probably isn't going to answer their question directly. Because Jesus asked 34 questions in the Gospel of Mark. And do you know how many of those questions he answered directly? Two. Because often we have wrong assumptions or wrong perspectives as we're asking our questions. And Jesus isn't just interested in ask, answering a question with a wrong assumption. So often he answers a question with a question, or he answers a question with a story, or he helps expose why that question is faulty to begin with. Uh, and so what are the chances of Jesus actually answering this question pretty directly? I think they're slim. Uh, so, Je- so Jesus answers them uh, this question through the, next, through the rest of the, ch- the chapter of uh, Mark chapter 13. So when Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And so Jesus is saying... Uh, so, some translations refer to this as see that you're not deceived. So make sure that no one's deceiving you. Don't, don't understand the wrong thing. Don't follow the wrong lead. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. They'll function like a Messiah figure, a false Messiah, telling you to, to go this way. And he's saying, don't listen to them. Don't be deceived. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end of the age, is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are the beginning of the birth pains. And I think the, the picture of birth pains is just a wonderful metaphor to understand what Jesus is referring to here in Mark 13. Birth pains. Now, I have been a witness of three births. Uh, at the time of Jesus, people would have uh, witness births far more often. Um, but uh, in our privatized culture, I've witnessed the three births of my own kids, and they were extremely, extremely painful for me and for my wife. Uh, they were probably more painful for her. Um, it, was, it was hard for me to watch. Uh, as a side note, one of the, uh, the labor and delivery nurses told me uh, that she had uh, passed a kidney stone at one time, and she said that the pain of passing a kidney stone was greater than the pain of childbirth. And I've passed a kidney stone. So I feel like maybe I can relate. Um, I probably shouldn't say that. But anyway, so Jesus refers to the birth pains as a metaphor, an understanding of what is happening in the world. The struggle, the pain, the hardship, the disappointment, what's going on in the world, he refers to as birth pains. And And I believe Jesus is calling the disciples and therefore calling us to live in the place where the purposes of God and the pain of the world cross paths with each other. Where the purposes of God and the pain of the world cross paths with each other. And birth pains is a picture of suffering 
intense suffering, but a picture of suffering that is not the end, but suffering that is attached to a hope of what is coming after it. Suffering so that life could come forth. And this suffering with life should frame our expectations and hardships of what we experience in this life. Is this the end of the world? No. These are the birth pains of of the labor that God is bringing about to deliver a new kind of world, a new kind of life. What we are experiencing, what the disciples were about to experience, that Jesus was warning them about, was birth pains, that God is up to something. So he says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's so much going on in those verses. We're gonna uh, we're gonna refer to it in a second. But this uh, this complex phrase right here, the abomination of desolation, is an echo of uh, Daniel 11 and 12, in a in a reference to that prophetic picture um, of when the the temple uh, this this. The, uh, the abomination that happened in the temple at the time of Daniel. And so Jesus is pulling in this phrase and saying there's something similar that is about to happen in the temple. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being who would be saved, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened these days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So there's so much there in that chunk of text. What we have to understand is what is being referred to in this text are events that are going to take place before the destruction of the temple that Jesus refers to at the beginning of chapter 13. So from verse 5 to verse 23... Jesus is describing horrific events that are going to take place. So this was this conversation maybe happening about 30 AD. And so in the next 40 years, Jesus is saying, there is trouble brewing. There is hardship coming. Everything ex- up to this point in Mark chapter 13 is exclusively about the events leading up to 70 AD. And he warned them that they would be hated by all people. And this was dramatically fulfilled a generation later when in Rome itself, the Christians were viciously persecuted by Nero being regarded as notoriously depraved and as holding to a deadly superstition, as one of the Roman historians put it. 
The history of the early church, in fact, shows that these warnings were accurate and they were needed because what was going to happen in those coming years was horrific. He's talking about a moment when foreign armies were, would come in 70 AD and take over the temple. Uh, we, with historical hindsight, obviously can look back and say, well, we understand what happened in AD 70. Um, and we can read from the historian uh, Josephus that the terrible tale of the siege of Jerusalem, how awful it was, how people were starved, how, how people actually had to eat their own babies to stay alive, how they fought each other for scraps of dirty food. Fu- food, how there was all these small-scale political uprisings and, and gains and, and, and people rebelling against, against each other. And there was Jews that were murdering Jews more than even the Romans were murdering. There, it was a horrific time. And Jesus warns them that there, there's trouble coming. You need to be aware. And in the year of 69 AD, um, there was four Roman emperors that su- succeeded each other very quickly. And they went from Nero and then um, ended with Vespasian, uh, and each time there was a transition, there was much violence, and there was murder, there was civil war, there was lots of upheaval in that in 69 AD to 70 AD, and then Vespasian's son, adopted son Titus actually came into Jerusalem and burnt the temple and destroyed the city and crucified thousands and thousands of Jews in 70 AD. So what Jesus is referring to in these verses up to verse 23 is not something happening somewhere in the distant future far down the road that we haven't experienced yet. He was telling the disciples that were there at that time that there was trouble coming and he was warning them then. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, all four corners, north, south, east, west, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And so what is being referred to, this coming in the clouds, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, it's it's imagery from Daniel as well. Uh, And this is referred to as the parousia, which comes from the Greek word, and in uh, parousia, the, that word is used in multiple places in the New Testament to describe the return of Jesus. And, and so, the, so the parousia, this return of Jesus, that, that the Son of Man is going to come back, coming on the clouds. And we're going to come back to that, what that actually means in a second. From the fig tree... Uh, learn its lessons. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but no words will, uh, but my words will not pass away. So this idea of a generation will not pass away is quite problematic for people that understood everything that Jesus said at some point in the distant future. Well, was Jesus lying? Was, was the generation he was talking to? Uh, you know, did he mislead them? Uh, well, no, he didn't mislead them because uh, that generation was going to experience what was about to happen. That that generation was not going to pass away before all those trials were going to come. But... There's also reference in that section we just read about the Son of Man returning and coming on the clouds. So what's going on here? Well, we need to understand that the disciples did not know 
that the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Son of Man were separate events. In fact, in that time, they probably assumed that the destruction of the whole temple system was the mark of the end of the age and the beginning of the next age. And so there is this mixing of these two events, the coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of the temple. And they're assuming that these are one and the same. And so we could understand Mark 13, 24 to 31, for sure referring to the events leading up to and including the destruction of the temple, and also possibly referring to the events around, uh, surrounding the coming of the Son of Man, the return of Jesus. We see both of these events. And it's clear that because of the reference of this generation will not pass away, that the temple destruction is definitely in view, and that's, part, uh, that, that's the main focus here. Uh, but, w- but it's unclear what role Jesus' return plays in all of the events that were happening. Why is it unclear? Well, let's look at the next verse. But concerning that day, concerning the day when the Son of Man is going to return, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This is, this is mind-boggling for many people. Uh, but we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, what the text is saying. Jesus is saying, the return of the Son of Man, that day, that event, the angels don't even know when that's going to be. And I, the Messiah, don't even know when that's going to be. And so we see here that Jesus, in verse 32, finally answers the question, in part, that the disciples asked in verse 4. Tell us when these things will be, and they had multiple things in mind, destruction of the temple, coming of the Son of Man, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Then Jesus says, after he describes all of these events that are going to happen, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So all of those troubles, all of those trials, all of those hardships, all of, all of that, the, that tragic Uh, the tragic events that were going to happen, Jesus says, are not signs of the coming of the Son of Man. Don't be deceived. Because the Son does not even know when the Son is going to return. What will be a sign? There won't be a sign. Don't be deceived by by all the bad stuff that's happening. These are birth pangs. God is up to something. But it's not a sign of the end of the age. It's not a sign of the return of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even know when the end of the age will, is going to be. What should make us pause and be, caution, be, be cautious when we hear people calculating and predicting end-time events, how this age is going to end and what exactly is going to happen and when it's going to happen and what are the events. Jesus doesn't even claim to know that. So we should be very suspicious of anybody that claims to know that. Jesus tells us what we need to know, not the things that we necessarily want to know. And, and, and what are those things? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, I want to jump to Matthew 24. This is the parallel passage of the same event happening in the Gospel of Matthew. Mark records it, Matthew records it. There's uh, similar language and explanation that Jesus is giving. Uh, but the reason I want to highlight Matthew is because this is where some of our misunderstanding of the end actually comes from. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. 
So two notes here. The days of Noah, Jesus refers to that the end is going to be like the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? And this is the, the text uh, where Jesus refers to people being taken off the earth. And often this has been uh, used to create a rapture theology, which is basically this belief that when Jesus returns, he's going to take all of the Christians with him and he's going to destroy the earth. And if that was your hope and dream, uh, I think that's a small hope and dream, but I'm also sorry to disappoint you that that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching and what he's saying. What happened in the days of Noah? God took evil off out of the world in the flood. He saw that there was, there was evil in the world and he wanted to restart his creation project with an elect group of people, uh, Noah and his family. And so he flooded the earth. He removed the earth of evil. And so when Jesus says there's a day coming, like in the days of Noah, he's not talking about taking Christians off of the earth and taking them to heaven. He's actually talking about the renewal of the creation project, which he started in the very beginning. He's going to renew the earth. He's going to rid the world of injustice and evil. He's going to restore everything and put everything back to the way it was supposed to be. And then this word coming, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is the word parousia. And what is this word referring to? Well, we, we get confused because we, the, here's a verse that describes the parousia. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, misunderstood creates this uh, a, t- a terrible theology of rapture. Uh, we need to. We actually need to understand what's happening here. Matthew 24. God's not taking us away from the earth. He's not destroying the earth. He's He's actually renewing the earth. And the the parousia, the term parousia, is a reference to when a king is away in a distant country, or he's gone off to battle somewhere else, and he returns to his homeland. And the people from his home country go out, or his home city go out to meet him and welcome him back. And it's like a welcoming parade. Welcome him back in and back home to his rightful home. So when the gospel talks, or when the New Testament talks about the parousia and that the, 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 the Lord's people will meet him in the air, it's not because the Lord is taking them away from the earth. It's actually because we are welcoming God to his rightful home and throne on the earth. That heaven and earth actually collide and become one. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. That is the gospel picture. This is the next, the, the picture of the next age, the end of this age going into the next age. So the return of Jesus is not about destruction, but about renewal. The return of Jesus is not about death, but it's about life. The return of Jesus is not about an ending, but it's about a beginning And all of the hardship that happens in this life is not a sign that everything is ending, but it's the birth pains and a sign that God is up to something and he can renew all things and redeem all things and he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. So Mark, coming to the end of Mark, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his his work and 
and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. So a very quick review. The first section is clearly about the temple. The second section there's it's talking going back and forth between the temple and the coming of the Son of Man uh, because Jesus and the disciples did not even know if those were the same event or not. They didn't know if those were the same event or not. We know now in, in hindsight that those were two separate events, but at the time they did not know. And then lastly, this last section in Mark 13 is in reference to the coming of the Son of Man, to the return of Christ. So throughout 13, there is an imperative. There is a Jesus is actually telling us what we need to know. Don't be deceived by all the activity, by, by all the tragedy, by the suffering, by the things that are going to happen in this life and in this world. But you must look out and you must watch. There's six imperatives, there's six commandments in chapter 13. And they all go back to Mark's theme about hearing clearly or seeing clearly. Do you have eyes to see? He's saying, look and watch out. Don't be deceived. And I, I can remember um, when I was in grade 12, our, our school did this, this Halloween fundraiser every year where the grade 12 students, uh, we would raise money for grad, and businesses would pay us to watch their properties for them uh, because Halloween was classic for vandalism and graffiti and things getting egged. And so, uh, so the town would, um, would hire the grade 12 students as a fundraiser to watch uh, the different businesses, and so we would stay up all night on Halloween night in grade 12 and watch out and be on guard uh, to make sure that, that nothing is going to happen. Um, except most of the grade 12s didn't. It was just an excuse to, to stay up all night long and hang out with your friends, and I remember ripping around, and I was supposed to be watching this, uh, it was a, a, a case tractor dealership I was supposed to be guarding and watching out, uh, but there was an open field nearby, and I remember taking my parents' four tourists, and we were ripping around in the field with the tourists. Uh, and as I was ripping around in the field, I hit one of those big green electrical boxes, busted the whole thing open, uh, completely marked up the side of my parents' car. There was green streaks and scratches across it, and I never told my parents about it. Uh, I remember like a week later, they noticed the, the marks on the car, and they, they were asking the kids what happened. Uh, and I didn't fess up about it uh, until I moved out of the house. Like half a dozen years later, I went back and said, hey, you know, uh, that was me. And I, I, uh, I was neglecting doing what I was supposed to do, and I was fooling around. <laughs> um, but that's an example of you know, being called to be on guard, to watch, and me neglecting my, my responsibilities uh, and just doing something with my friends, completely oblivious to the job and the task that I was supposed to be doing. The disciples and you and I are called to be on watch, to be on guard, to be, to be observing. And what does, that even, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be on watch? Looking out, keeping watch. It doesn't mean looking for signs. This, we need to be clear about this. Jesus is clear that looking and watching is not looking for signs. It's not decoding the times. It's not calculating when is the end coming. It actually means the opposite. It means don't be deceived by the signs. Your job in looking, your job in guarding is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Being watchful means being faithful. Your job is to remain faithful no matter what's happening in the world around you. 
So check this out. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. There's four times um, talked about here. And we could spend a lot of time talking about these four, but I think this gives us context for actually what Jesus is inviting us to out of Mark 13. These four times are referred to as different watches of the night. There was four watches, four time chunks in uh, the Roman understanding of the night. There was four watches of the night. There was an evening watch from 9 p.m. to 12. There was a midnight watch from 12 a.m. to 3. 3. There, was a, there was a time referred to as when the rooster crows. That was 3 a.m. to 6. And then there was a morning time at 6 a.m. Now check this. Out of Mark 13, the next period of the story in the Gospel of Mark period or or chronologically goes through a watch uh, four watches of the night in the passion story in Jesus story to the crucifixion in mark 14:17 you can flip ahead it refers to the evening the, this is the first watch of the night what happens at the first watch of the night judas betrays jesus and so now mark 13 jesus saying be watchful that means be faithful And now in the first watch, we see that a disciple that was not faithful, that he betrayed Jesus for comfort, for money, and and he left the way of following Jesus for something else. And Jesus is an example of someone who was faithful, that even though he was betrayed by his friends, still was obedient to the Father. That was the first watch. The second watch. At midnight, so Mark 13 refers to midnight. And then we see midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? The disciples fall asleep. When Jesus needed them most, when he needed his his best friends most, they let him down. They fell asleep. They didn't keep watch. They didn't pray. They tried to fight back with the sword, which was not the way of Jesus. They totally missed the point. What did Jesus do? He was an example of someone that remained faithful, even when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and God didn't answer his prayer in the way that he wanted, when he prayed, Father, take this cup from me, God didn't answer his prayer in the way he wanted, Jesus remained faithful even then. The third watch of the night, what happened there? When the rooster crows in 14, verse 72, Peter has a denial and he denies Jesus. Why? Because he didn't want to be associated with Jesus because the crowds were against Jesus. Uh, he wanted to fit in with the crowd. And so when people ask him, hey, aren't you with Jesus? He denies him and says, I am not. And there's a line in the text that says he was warming himself by the fire. He chose the comfort of being with the crowd over the discomfort of following Jesus. He did not remain faithful to Jesus. Yet Jesus, who was abandoned by his number one disciple, Peter, he was alone. He was isolated. He was all by himself. He remained faithful to the Father. And then we have the fourth watch, the morning. The, and it says, in the morning, at that fourth watch, in the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus goes before Pilate, before the governing authorities, before the political authorities, and he is put on trial for, um, for what he claimed. And we see this contrast in all four watches of unfaithful followership and faithful followership in Jesus. And this is where we need to actually apply Mark chapter 13. It's not about predicting the signs. It is not about calculating, is this the end, is it not the end? Jesus didn't tell us when the end is. One, because he didn't know. And two, because that wasn't what's important for us as disciples. What is important for us is that we keep our eyes, our watch on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, that we remain faithful to him regardless of the chaos or hardships or suffering that might be happening in the world around us. Mark 13 does not help you or I construct a timetable when Jesus is coming back. If that's what we think it's about, we've missed the point. This is about faithfulness. This is about patience. Will you be faithful like Jesus when you're disappointed? Will you be faithful like Jesus in your waiting? Will you be faithful to, like Jesus in your loneliness? Will you be faithful like Jesus when you're rejected? Will you be faithful like Jesus when, you're, when you're, your, your prayers are not answered in the way that you want them to be answered? Jesus calls us to be faithful. Or will we leave the way of Jesus like the disciples when it's hard, when there's an easier way out, when there's crowds that are doing something different, or when there's pain and when there's disappointment, when there's unanswered prayer, when there's luxury, when there's money, when there's comfort calling us, will we be tempted to leave the way of Jesus when things aren't easy? Jesus wants his disciples in Mark 13 and his disciples today not to worry about predicting the future, but to worry about following him regardless of what is happening in the world around us. We are called to follow Jesus and be faithful. So SunWest, don't give up. Stay faithful. I know that many of you are going through hard times. And God is not calling us to try and predict the future, but he's calling us to keep our eyes on Jesus in the moment. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it was a word that was needed at a time 2,000 years ago, and it's a word that is needed today. Lord, we know that the trials, the suffering, the hardships, the chaos that the church experienced 2,000 years ago uh, has been repeated throughout history. And we are experiencing a different type of turmoil, not just here, but around the globe in some way today. Lord, may we keep our eyes on you. May we realize that our call is not to be predictors of the future, but to be faithful disciples of Jesus, of you in the present. Give us courage. Give us patience. Increase our faith so that we can follow you regardless of what might be happening in our personal lives and in the world around us. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, I know that uh, that was a lot of content to cover in one Sunday, and I am, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> uh, but I think there's a lot of misunderstandings on this topic um, that, that we've had in the church, and I think it's a very timely uh, chapter for us to focus in on. So I hope that there was pieces and nuggets in there uh, that encourage you today to remain faithful to Jesus uh, regardless of your story, your situation, or the story uh, that we as a corporate uh, community find ourselves in in the world. Uh, some questions just for you to ponder to go deeper on uh, with your family, with your church at home group, or just in your own reflection time. Uh, what has been your understanding of the last days or the end times? How has the interpretation that I've talked about in Mark 13 affirmed how you've understood it or challenged your previous understanding? What practical difference does our understanding of the future play to our living in the present? I mean, we could do a whole sermon series on that question alone. But how does our future understanding of what God is doing, what he's up to, impact how we live as disciples today? What are the challenges in your life to remain faithful in following Jesus? Can you relate to any of the examples in the four watches? 
can you relate to Jesus' example of, of staying faithful when he was betrayed or when, there was a pr- when the father didn't answer the prayer the way he wanted or when he felt isolated or lonely or when he was uh, put on trial? Can you relate to Jesus in that way? Maybe you can relate to the disciples who have moved um, off the path of following Jesus uh, to pursue comfort or to find safety or, um, or to, to be more aligned with the crowd and the culture. Um, you know, where do you identify? Is there something that you can be encouraged with or challenged with uh, by those four different pictures in the four watches? Uh, so I hope that helps you dive deeper. Uh, there's lots of content there to dive into. Um, and so I, I pray that you would remain faithful, that you would follow Jesus. And I know that uh, many people uh, are going through different challenging times in the season, uh, but Jesus is greater and he has overcome the world And so we can take great confidence and hope in following him, knowing that he is in the business of renewing all things. Blessings to you, SunWest. We'll see you next week. 